Streaming audio is made possible by Hungry Harvest, delivering farm-fresh produce and grocery staples to your door. Every delivery allows you to support local donations that fight hunger in the community. Learn more at HungryHarvest.net. This episode is sponsored by VG+, an omnivorous record label based in Baltimore, releasing sublime sounds by Picks and Lighters, Susan Alcorn and Philip Greenleaf, Terroplane, and San Francisco Moog, 1968-1972, a collection of previously unreleased music by Doug McKechnie that rewrites electronic music history. Find it on the web at vgplusrecords.com. It, is, it does sound like it's done in one take, and it's so raw and so minimal, to the point like when they come back into the third verse after this kind of stinging lead guitar that the, the singer... Um, comes in at the wrong place, you know, and then he, he, and then, and then he, he stops and then he comes in on the right place. But the fact that they kept it on the record, I mean, it's one of the great, it's one of the great sort of like out of sight errors, you know, you know, Brian Eno always sort of talked about like how, you know, how mistakes have as much value as intentions. And it's just like, well, <laughs> I mean, Louie Louie is proof of that. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs, necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. Thurston Moore turned on an entire generation to the value of experimentation in rock and roll. From its inspiration on a nascent Nirvana, to Sonic Youth's own Daydream Nation album being chosen by the U.S. Library of Congress for historical preservation in the National Recording Registry in 2006. Moore records and performs in a wide variety of disciplines, ranging from free improvisation to acoustic composition to black-white metal noise disruption. He has worked with Yoko Ono, John Zorn, Bobby Gillespie, Cecil Taylor, Glenn Branca, and many others. first song Moore chose as being formative for him was Louie Louie by the Kingsmen. 
mean, I, the, I mean, the first song would have to be "Louie Louie" by the Kingsmen. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, which came out in '63, and um, I was born in 1958. So do the math. I was pretty young, and my I have a, a brother who's five years older who brought that into the house. It would have been the first rock and roll record in our household, um, and. I was young enough where I believed my brother when he told me that he and his friends had recorded it. And so he would mouth the words uh, while the record was being played on my parents' early 60s console. And um, I, I, I kind of believed him, but I knew something was rather suspect because um, the, there was a techno technological divide there that I thought maybe was too much of a hurdle um, in, its, in its sort of... But I, I enjoyed believing him. Um, as, I, as, as that record stayed in our household for quite some time throughout the '60s, and other records came in. Eventually, not at, mostly towards the later part of the decade, but for some reason, that record entered uh, the house and uh, was kind of the central uh, rock and roll record. And it certainly introduced me to what rock and roll was in a, in a very big way. Um, it was it, it was very primal. Um, and it, it just sounded like some like tough teenagers hanging out on the street, uh, <laughs> singing a song, you know, and, um, and I wanted nothing more than to be grow up and be sort of some tough teenager hanging out in front of Seven Eleven, you know, like, you know, smoking cigarettes. And that looked really cool. And that's what that record sounded like to me, like those guys. And, uh. What was interesting about it, though, in a way, was the the copy of the record we had. The flip side was a song, was an instrumental song called "Haunted Castle," and that attracted me as much, if not more. Um, it had a, a bit of a mysterioso kind of organ figure in it, and I think that was supposed to be the vibe of a haunted castle, anyway. This kind of mysterioso vibe. Um, and when I listen to it now, it's rather, it's rather quaint, but I, um, remember at the time I thought like that was my introduction to that kind of, uh, that kind of sound that became popularized by like the theme song to the Munsters or something, you know, that kind of, <laughs> you know, and that to me was that, that kind of Hollywood, um, uh, lens of rock and roll, like you would hear on the Munsters or the Adams Family, or these, or even like a television show like the Monkees, which was a fabricated group to sort of um, uh, be be like the Beatles, but controlled by the television studio. Um, that to me was sort of a that was a lot of rock and roll information uh, coming out of television, but um, but that. Yeah, the Kingsman Louie Louie on a label called Wand, you know, um, black and white label um, had all these magic properties to it. Just seeing that word Wand go around and round, and you know, held on to that record for a long time. At some point, I remember me me and some friends in the '60s going out and throwing records up in the air and trying to shoot them with BB guns. And I think maybe the first copy of Louie Louie we had has a bit of a BB gun hole uh, in the <laughs> in the label. <laughs> do Do you still have it? Do you think? I yeah, I do still have it. Um, I would have to un, I would have to un, um, uncover it, but I know it, it's still around, just chewed, you know. And I, I I've actually um, 
sometimes I come across it like in a used record store, like a copy of Louie Louie on, on Wand. And sometimes it has a different B-side. And to find it with the Haunted Castle B-side, I think I did locate one a few years ago and I was just like, oh, here it is, you know, like this magic carpet of my childhood, you know. And so I, I would always purchase it. You know, it's it's not it's not the most expensive or rare record, but for me, it's the most probably the you know the most essential record in in, in my um in my world. It, you know, it really is astonishing how how you know, and this has come up a couple of times on the show on how something that sort of slapdash, where probably no one in the room thought that they were creating anything great or lasting. I mean, maybe they did, but they were probably wrong. But in this mm. case, they really did. It's like garbage made out of, or magic made out of garbage. You know, it's just yeah. Like, I, it, it it never ceases to to amaze. Me. I mean, it wasn't their song, and you know, historically, Louis Louis has become kind of a uh, a thing to write about. I mean, there's a whole there's a whole book about Louis Louis. You know, because all all the different covers of his song. So, sort um, there's a story there, and so I looked into it. I mean, their their version was just regional, um, you know, to the to the Pacific Northwest, um, and it, be, it it's the one version of that song that sort of uh, just through the machinations of radio DJs, kind of um, uh, communicating with each other, that one sort of took off uh, uh, nationally, if not internationally. When it could have been, I think the Whalers did a version, and there's a couple of different versions. Um, you know, it was written by Richard Berry and he sort of got it from like some uh, Caribbean uh, ditty, you know, um, uh, Louis Louis as a basically, yeah, it was like a, it was a song that was by some kind of Caribbean party group that had recorded it. Um, and the the very earliest versions of it are, are sung in a sort of a, a Caribbean patois, um, and then it comes, and then Richard Berry does a more sort of, um, uh, sort of um, kind of whitens it up a little bit, and then, uh, and then, it you know just sort of becomes a standard. But the, the 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 Kingsman's version is just so interesting because it's it is it does sound like it's done in one take, and it's so raw and so minimal to the point like when they come back into the third verse after this kind of stinging lead guitar that the, the singer um, comes in at the wrong place, you know, and then he, he, and then, and then he, he stops and then he comes in on the right place. But the fact that they kept it on the record, I mean, it's one of the great, it's one of the great sort of like out of sight errors, you know, you know, Brian Eno always sort of talked about like how, you know, how mistakes have as much value as intentions. And it's like, well, <laughs> I mean, Louis Louis is proof of that. It's like that mistake is so jarring, but so cool. And you, you hear it on like T-Rex's of Bang a Gong too. You know, he does, it's like this kind of slight mistake that they keep in the mix because it, it sounds cool. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it, that was a lesson in, how to make mistakes work for you or just allowing them to sort of retain their, you know, their, their magic. So I don't know if this is getting ahead of, of our, of our, of our story here, but it, did that make you want to play music? Were you already interested in it? 
Oh, yeah. It made me want to make mistakes a lot. No, it maybe. Um, yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, I, I kind of like wanted to um, do nothing but I uh, had no guitar and I would just um, I would play the tennis racket. You know, that was my guitar for, for at first and just for sort of fantasizing. Um, and then one came into our household uh through a relative and it was an acoustic guitar that just I kind of banged around on. But it wasn't until I, you know, my five-year-old older brother brought in a serious electric guitar and he started becoming quite the guitar player. And then I would sort of, um, you know, I would, I would steal his guitar a lot while he was away and play it. And then he'd get angry. And then he finally got me one uh, that he had sort of come across. And that was like in the early seventies, but yeah, no, that, that record certainly, was the calling card. But, you know, everybody was getting kind of, um, everybody was, was being turned on to rock and roll in the, at that time in the early 60s. And like when the monkeys were on TV, I was of the age where it was just like, that was really, really important, you know, that there was this, this band from the USA that could be your Beatles. Because, um, you know, the Beatles sort of uh, quickly became the you know the 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 hardcore reference for all that was rock and roll for everybody in uh from 63 64 onwards um you know there was you would hear about other bands but it didn't really matter the beatles were the only band really that mattered and anything else was secondary or tertiary at best even the rolling stones were always kind of like it's kind of band playing catch up with the Beatles uh, to some degree um, even, but you know they they were they, they had their own thing going on enough um, in realizing that they were going to be like the, 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 you know, the, the more dangerous version yeah, 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 yeah. The second song Moore chose as essential to his formation as an artist was the single Hey Joe, backed with Piss Factory by Patti Smith. Honey, the way you play guitar makes me feel so, makes me feel so masochistic. The way you go down low deep into the neck and I would do anything and I would do anything and Patty Hearst you standing there in front of the Simonese Liberation Army flag with your legs spread I was wondering were you getting it every night from a black revolutionary man and his women or were you really dead and now that you are on the run what goes on in your mind your sister they sit by the window you know your mama does a sit and cry and your daddy well you know what your daddy said Patty you know what your daddy said Patty he said he said he said Oh, 60 days ago, she was such a lovely child. Now here she is with a gun in her hand. I 
would say the second song would, would probably be, um, you know, it would be the seven inch that I sent away for uh, by Patti Smith uh, called Hey Joe. Um, and the flip side was called Piss Factory. And it was self released by her and Lenny Kay, who, who was her guitarist at the time. I sent away for it because it was advertised in a, a music magazine called Rock Scene uh, in the early 70s. I think she took a few ads out in a couple of magazines and maybe the Village Voice at the time. And um, I was very curious about it because I had, I was really, I was really into reading uh, 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 rock, rock and roll, rock and roll journalism. And at the time, that was that was really important to me, like finding magazines that were writing about this music. And so Roxane Magazine and Cream Magazine, and there was a magazine called Circus. And there was a magazine called Hit Parader, which had all the lyrics to all the kind of radio songs, but it also had articles. And certainly there was Rolling Stone. And then there was a few outliers like Crawdaddy and Fusion, if you could find them. But living in rural Connecticut, where I was from 67 onwards, it was basically um, what you could find. And that would be, first and foremost, Rolling Stone as a newspaper. And I would go into New York City sometimes with my parents for whatever reason, and I would see these other magazines, um, uh, specifically Cream, which was really sort of intoxicating because it was like, it was really funny and acerbic and dealing with more sort of um, marginalized uh, musicians on the scene, like Captain Beefheart. And then you, you would, I first saw pictures of Iggy in, in, in uh, rock scene or the MC5. And they would, the ma that magazine, I mean, Cream, that magazine was coming out of um, Detroit, Michigan. So um, it's, it was always focusing on that. So um, Patti Smith was a, was one of the bylines of the many, of the, the many different writers from Lester Bangs, Richard Meltzer, um, and Lenny Kay was also a byline in the magazines. He was a journalist. Uh, and I thought their writing for me had the same energy as the music. I mean, it was, I, I thought it had equal value to the music. Um, I got as much out of, out of their journalism as I did the records they were writing about. And it made me want to not only be possibly in a, in a rock band, but it made me also want to be a writer in a rock magazine. And so to me, those two things were uh, equal value. And there, Patti Smith had a, had a record out. And uh, that was really curious to me because she had published, well, Cream Magazine had published some of her poetry. And then when they did that, they had some photos of her. So here was this, this other aspect of this writer um, that other writers weren't really um, expressing. And that was, first of all, that was the first thing that was curious about that, um, was that she was more than just a rock writer. She was a poet. And then the photographs, like she was really cool looking, androgynous Keith Richards kind of vibe going on there. And like, um, so that was interesting, you know, and it was very urban at a time when most of the images of rock musicians were 
embracing the you know escaping to the country the rural you know the J james taylor in a rowboat with the dog you know or you know that kind of, you know crosby stills and nash and young sitting on a porch you know that you know like a broken down like uh shack and of course they didn't live like that but you know that's that the image they were putting across um but but the pictures of patty were her on a subway platform in new york city you know or like on a street corner and that's where she lived and i was just like well that's kind of cool and uh so i sent away for that record just because i wanted to hear what a what a rock writer sounded like on a record <laughs> that was the only really reason and um and it was astounding i mean i remember getting it just like a white sleeve with a seven inch and and uh from a company called the war um the war Toke concern which was like her, her management company, I guess. Um, and it was produced by Lenny Kay um, and Robert Maplethorpe. I think, I think Maplethorpe actually ponied up the money for it. Um, but nobody, you know, nobody knew who Robert Maplethorpe was at, at that time. And, uh, but his name is on that label. And hearing that record was just like, um, you know, I heard it before, horses obviously it came out like in 74 i think that's that single and um it was just you know that it was so uh it, it was it was so minimal and raw and it started out with a recitation a reading that led into her singing this version of hey joe with just this kind of uh, to the piano accompaniment and a and a bit of a scratchy guitar from somebody named Tom Verlaine, and uh, so you know, and that's another name that I was aware of because Patty had written the very first piece nationally about television in Rock Scene magazine as well around seventy four, um, and it was the first time you saw a picture of these four guys who had short hair. You know, and you know uh, Richard Hell and Tom Verlaine, and the other two guys, and they and they uh, uh, Richard Lloyd and and they, you know, nobody had short hair in rock bands, you know, but these guys had short hair, so that was like, you know, that was really striking and hurt all lowercase writing about this band, and so that name was on her record, Tom Verlaine, um, and it was just you know. At a time when so much of music culture was really just all about the grandiose, you know, um, from just Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Yes. And I had, I think I had seen uh, some, a couple of concerts at that point, and they were just, just these kind of big deals, Rick Wakeman and Peter Frampton, you know, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> But then they hear this record, which just it just sounded like it was, um, again, it was it, it was it was almost like Louis Louis. It was like it was recorded that day. It was recorded just like really fast, um, and it was it was really economical, at a time when money seemed to be sort of like the big thing about rock and roll with Led Zeppelin in their in their you know private jet. Um, that this was not that at all. So it was the first time I heard something like that. I mean, even the glitter rock and glam rock scene around Bowie and Kiss, and it, was, it had all this kind of uh, illusion towards wealth 
in like you know in being rich and and celebrating that kind of the fabulousness of of um of hanging out with the in crowd of uh you know high society or something you know brian ferry and his tux on the cover of his record you know it was cool but it was just like it was it was unobtainable it wasn't it wasn't something you figured like you could actually get to be that and with the patty smith record it was like oh i could do that as i mean that's kind of like what i would like to do is like something like that and it sort of led you into hearing the first ramones record and you know which again was like another um wasn't was was another catalytic record right after that certainly um because the ramones record was like in 75 i think the lp and then horses was in 75 too i think well, horses comes out early 76 late and i think because i first see her play like um in, in early 76 in Westport, Connecticut. And um, so anyway, yeah, I would say that that record is was something that was really critical for me because it, it kind of it led me into wanting to um, investigate what was happening in New York City, because I knew that she was playing at this place called CBG because I knew there was this place called Max's Kansas City that people had come out of. I was into the New York dolls and all that kind of stuff. And I knew that was a bit of a New York thing, but again, it felt older. Like I, I wasn't really of the age to think about putting silver lemme uh, trousers on with like, you know, you know with heels. And, and I was just, you know, it wasn't, that wasn't in my purview, but to go in to this, find a place called CBGB's where you could just sort of be yourself and sort of hear music like that. <clears throat> That record was sort of the calling card. The next one after that was to was television's little Johnny Jewel record, which had the same effect. It was it was the same quality of just being really basic, and, you know, with no frills, and um, yeah. But Patty's was first <clears throat> in that scene. I'm curious. You you mentioned you're uh, going to New York with your parents, and you know, having an older brother who played guitar. Did they? Did they encourage this interest in music or was it just something sort of happening in the background? They certainly weren't um, against it. I don't think they realized what exactly it was. Um, my father was a musician who played piano and, and taught music studies and art studies. Uh, he passed away in uh, 76. So at that time, it was like our, our, our family was sort of in this kind of um, tumultuous uh, situation. Um, so my mother was um, totally okay with me wanting to have music as a vocation. She might have had some kind of apprehension about me going to New York City, especially when New York City in 1976, 77 was Fear City. Um, you know, my brother was in the joint the air force in around 76 75 76 um so he wasn't that um he wasn't that aware of what i was up to but he was enough to the point where he thought it was kind of curious and interesting and he was kind of i think he was excited for his little brother actually sort of um you know actually starting going to new york and starting a band and stuff and I have a sister too, who's two, who's three years older. And, and yeah, I mean, she, nobody gave me any issue about it. I think, um, I think, 
if I had gotten into some kind of trouble in the interim, uh, which a lot of people did, you know, moving to New York and sort of, you know, um, getting strung out, you know, like uh, on drugs and or just getting in, you know, in other uh, trouble because it was kind of a, a crime infested place. Um, that would have been a drag, you know, but that that I was able to sort of um, not have that happen in my life. And, uh, yeah, I had enough enough awareness, but <laughs> it was an interesting time, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, no, that, but other than that, it was very supportive. When I first played at CBGB, I remember my mother came to see, like, exactly what her son was up to. And she, she loved it, you know. She just thought, and we were, you know, we were like smashing our guitars with drumsticks and, and power drills and, and s screaming and yelling. And, you know, she was like, she just thought it was fantastic. The final song Moore chose as being crucial to him was Public Image by Public Image Limited. song would be for me um, I would say it would be the first um, public image seven inch um, uh, which which is called public image uh, theme song um, it was after the sex pistols broke up and then you heard uh, Johnny Rotten went back to his birth name John Lydon and um, uh, you know, we were all so completely enamored by, you know, the existence of the Sex Pistols. And then they had made such an impeccable document. Never mind the bollocks. Here's the Sex Pistols, which, you know, I mean, there's a few impeccable albums uh, in the history of rock and roll music. And certainly never mind the bollocks it has to be one of them. I mean, from beginning to end, from the song sequence to, to how it was recorded to the presentation, it's it's one of those records um and it's so it'll always be eternal like that so how can you actually sort of uh go beyond something like that nobody else in the band did really i mean glenn matlock continued to play different rock bands into whatever um, measure and jones and cook continued to sort of bang around playing rock and roll bands like the professionals and stuff and sid vicious killed himself so i mean it's like uh you know what could Leiden do? Well, he, you know, he he hunkered down in 
sort of created like this group that was like dealing with this fusion of like uh you know heavy dub reggae and ex just experimental concepts that he had gleaned from listening to like like german rock of the early 70s be it can or or or, or noi and so those aspects together with his own sort of acerbic kind of uh, uh, language and and his own presentation, um, creating this band called Public Image, which, you know, was not a band. It's a corporation, you know, it's like just making this commentary about, you know, uh, let's get real about what, what, what rock bands are in this day and age, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're product, you know, and so and so making comment on that. But at the same time, um, making this really heavy tune that was so contemporary to a lot of the, um, the the music, the radical music coming out of 70s punk and no wave. And so when that record comes out in like, what, 82 or something, 81, 82? And uh, I mean, it might be too late on that. It might be like 80 uh, when, when Public Image's first single comes out. And it comes out like in a... Uh, in, in, a, in a newspaper with all this kind of like uh, faux scandalous headlines about the group and stuff and the, the records. Are, and just like uh, at the outset of that song with Jaw Wobble's bass figure, this heavy dub bass figure, you know, and then Leiden just sort of announcing in a microphone, hello, hello, hello. And then like, you know, you never listen to a thing that I said, you know. and uh, And just like talking about like, you know, don't follow the hype. Do your own thing and be be in, follow creative impulse before you follow anything, and be true to your art. That's what was going on in that song in that record, and that and that song was just such a groove. You know, there's a great scene in the movie about John Michel Basquiat's life, uh, Basquiat, where where the character uh, of Basquiat is walking down the New York City street, and that public image song comes on, and it's just perfect. Because that's what that time was. It was like that was that was the soundtrack of that summer. It was that song. It was just like there was, so it, that group, Pilb was just like the was the most significant sound, the most significant group for that that summer of eighty and going in, and then going into eighty one for sure. You know that was like that was like sort of like we can do whatever we want. You know away from the strictures of anything, be it punk rock or whatever. It was just like it was. It just really opened up the language of 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 um, like of new music, um, and so I always give my hat off my hat off to that song for sure. Well, and you know it's funny because it it sounds really different than the Sex Pistols, and I mean it's still guitar, bass, and drums, but you know a lot of punk sounded sort of I forget who use this term but like you know fast chuck berry right it's like you right. got a little bit of that that same sound public image uh sounded completely different yeah but it was still pretty simple i mean you could play that bass line with a, a finger or two you know oh yeah yeah and we did i always remember going into rehearsals like early sonic youth rehearsals it's like you could do that bass line which is basically just a and it was sort of like an open e octave e I think <laughs> if you think about it, so it's just basically going from like the, it's, it's going from that root note to the octave of it, you know, and it's just like, great. How, how, I mean, you know, the only, the 
anything more simpler would just be like not to have a second note. <laughs> it, but it was, you know, but the, the sound of it, the the effect of it, it was just like it was fantastic, you know. I mean, and um, and and Keith Levine's guitar playing was really experimental. He was just like creating these like snaking lines, um, uh, that created just this kind of like really odd atmosphere you know it was really it was great and you know and hearing the things that happened around it like the slits album that dennis bovell produced cut came out around you know a, a bit afterwards and that was even more of a of a, a experimental dub kind of like a post-punk statement you know to the point where that record is you know insanely incredible um, and the, you know the first raincoat stuff, and then you started hearing Gang of Four, and I mean just everybody's sort of like taking different leaps. So I think I think Public Image had a lot to do with sort of inspiring a lot of um, a, a lot of good music, and in that respect, um, and so I mean like I think we Sonic early Sonic Youth was very much informed by that record. So um, would you have been, uh, like the very early 80s, would this maybe have been, I think the band was The Coachman, or was this yeah. very early Sonic Youth? What, it's very early Sonic Youth. chronology work there? It's late. Coachman sort of do their last gig um, at some point in the 80, and then um, it kind of crosses over with working with um, with with uh, Kim and this woman, Anne Demarinus, uh, who I had met. It was first. It was me and Anne, and then I, we, we, and then and then Kim joined. There was another woman who was playing in the group for a second, named uh, Miranda Stanton Miranda, who introduced me to Kim. I mean, it was all these things were happening just sort of downtown, um, and we we first played under the name Red Milk, and then we played under the name The Arcadians. We had a name called Male Bonding, but I don't think we ever played under that name. Um, and so we were sort of flirting with these different names, and we had a couple of gigs at the same places that the coachman would have played at, which was this place called A's. The letter A was a loft space on Broom Street that was like where everybody hung out on that scene, and I, that's where you would have seen like Basquiat's first group test pattern was always playing there. I remember seeing them a lot. In fact, there's some coachman posters that were both on together. And, and, um, that's where the first Sonic youth gig was under the name red milk. Um, and so, yeah, we kind of crossed over like right when the coachmen were sort of stopping playing because the other members who were slightly older than I was um, had sort of lost steam with it and they kind of thought like it would be better off just to focus on their other disciplines which was like one was an illustrator but there was two illustrators and there was a filmmaker and and so it kind of um, carrying amps through the snow and trying to catch it like a checker cab uh, to like some freezing gig where maybe three people were there to see you if at best uh, wore thin after about a year and a half, and um, at least it did for them. I, I was just like, I didn't, I didn't care about any of that. I just wanted to. This was all I was going to do, and so I started playing with these, these women, these young women, and and then um, Anne left, and uh, the summer of '81 is when uh, Lee Ronaldo joined us. 
so yeah, the rest the rest is history, I guess. So I've been really detailing a lot of this because I've been writing about it uh, the last few months in in, in quarantine, uh, really f- writing about like um, being in New York as as a teenager in the '70s and how I got involved with playing music with these people and then meeting these other people that became Sonic Youth. So I've been and so I've been annoying a lot of people by writing to them. They're like, "Do you remember this gig?" And like. <laughs> At the Mud Club in like June of '81, when who was drumming? You know, like, and uh, you know, everybody's in their 60s now. They're like, yeah, "Oh, please, <laughs> why are you dragging this up again? This history." Um, well, I have to say, I recently <laughs> we had we had Chris Franz on the show, and I recently uh, read his book, and it's just a lot of fun for all the stories yeah. about who was there and you know, yeah, who yeah, did yeah, what, and you know, that's. It was a good read, so I'll. I'll look I, I never met I'll you know I've never, I've never met Chris, but the funny thing is oh. he fi- he figures in my history at that time because the the coachmen were coming out of the Rhode Island School of Design and they were the class after the Talking Heads, and so when I played with them, they were they had some association with that gang, and the first job I got in New York City was a shipping clerk at a place called Design Research in the basement on 52nd Street. And I took over Chris Franz's job. Um, and because Chris, his his band Talking Heads were getting rather active, and so he didn't really need a day job anymore. And so I took over his job. And that was, you know, 70, that would have been 78. And, that, um, and I remember about a Earlier this year, when um, writing to somebody about this, and they said, oh, I know Chris. And they wrote to Chris. And Chris was just like, you got to be kidding me. Like, really? Like, he was, he couldn't believe that. Like, because like, he totally remembered working in that basement doing that shipping job. But he had no idea that I took his job over for, you know, for like six months. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So thanks to Chris, I actually had some employment for a little while in 78. <laughs> it's not in his book, but it is in my book. <laughs> this has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore and NPR. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening.